Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. I've already had a lot of great conversations about the weirdness and pleasure of being a writer, so please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you do enjoy these episodes, which go up every Monday morning without fail, please tell other people about them. I do this on my own, so it helps a lot. If you want to send me a suggestion for a future guest, or comment on an episode, or just find out more about what I am doing, I have books of my own, hint, hint, please go to nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Natalie McLean. Natalie is a journalist and wine writer whose first book, Red, White, and Drunk All Over, was published in 2006, and her second, Unquenchable, was published in 2011. Her most recent book, the memoir Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much, was published in 2023 by Dundurn Press and was a national bestseller. Natalie is the wine expert on CTV's The Social and has been named the world's best drinks writer at the World Food Media Awards and won four James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards. She is also the host of the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. Natalie and I talk about her knack for self-promotion and the team that helps keep her many, many projects going, about her fundamental shyness and how that contrasts with the fact that she's hardly ever not speaking publicly about wine in one format or another, and about how, despite being very proud of Wine Witch on Fire and all its success, she has zero interest in writing something so raw and personal again. I'll warn you in advance, I'm not going to ask you about any pairings. This will be the rare interview where I don't ask you. That's all I know, for... though. It's like <laughs> no. not asking a figure skater where she gets her, her skates sharpened. We, like, well, what am maybe, I... <laughs> I'm maybe we'll, 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 we'll touch on the subject of the fact that you get asked for pairings, no matter what the ostensible topic is. Many of the authors I have on this podcast, there's there's a huge range in terms of their their comfort with the whole promotional side of it, the whole like self-promotion of all the authors I've had. You are the person who has taken it to such a uh, uh, amazing level that I'm envious of. I will be <laughs> completely honest. I'm an like expert you... at self-promotion. <laughs> well, and I don't think you, there's no apology to be made for that. I mean, not not even just to the extent of like, here's some great news about the book. You have a whole, um, you have a whole area on your website where you are offering like package deals. If people buy multiple copies, you get videos, Bonuses. lost yeah. chapters, <laughs> interviews with people, wine workshops. Um, is that just, has that just always been part of your approach that you're like, no, you can't just throw these things out into the wild. You have to keep building and building and building this stuff. Yeah, when I was born, um, I said, wait, let me put a filter on before you take photos, right? <laughs> so it's, yeah, self-promotion is just, you know, <laughs> no. Actually, I, I grew up, and I still am, uh, introvert, uh, as an introvert and shy. Uh, but the one thing that um, 
perhaps saved me, uh, at least career-wise, is that I was a competitive Highland dancer. So mm. I'm kind of all or nothing. So I, I'm I'm good one-on-one um, or in front of a big crowd or TV or whatever, because I'm there to perform and to make sure that the audience has a good time and to forget that I would like to melt into a puddle of neuroses. Um, so, but you know, where I kind of fall down flat on my face, Nathan, is like, get me in a group of five to six to maybe 20 people. It's like terror. Um, mm. so it ser- it serves the book well that I can, you know, help, um, promote it. But this book also um, is different for me. Like my first ones were, you know, red, white, and drunk all over, uh, tipsy, sir, or no, a wine-soaked journey from grape to glass, a mouthful every title. The second <laughs> one was unquenchable, <laughs> a tipsy search for the world's best bargain bottles. But wine, witch on fire, rising from the ashes of divorce, defamation, and drinking too much, is more. Um, it's far more personal, and mm-hmm. it's got a message in it that is. Um, it's kind of put me on a on mission. So. When I get out there, I almost think of the book as my little sister, and I'm here mm. to make sure she gets out into the world, her message is heard for those who want or need to hear it. So it doesn't feel so much like self-promotion if I think about it that way. And certainly the reader letters that I've gotten back, or not so much letters, but I guess direct messages and emails have certainly reflected that like what's happened that for me is the most powerful thing is that people immediately start talking about their own story. So, you know, it's not my story. It's that my story enabled, I don't know, or helped them to voice their stories, how they relate. And and that's what I think um, a good memoir should do. Well, this, this is happening right now because now I will share something personal (laughs) now that you've said that which is that same feeling of like i mean i do this podcast every week i teach at humber college so i get up in front of groups of you know 30 or 40 semi-hostile young people uh every you know multiple times a week and i do author events and i will talk and i have no problem with that it's once the event is over or the class is over or the podcast is over and i have to like address a group of seven people (laughs) or not even address them, but be part of a conversation that I'm like, Oh, I've lost all skills that all of those social skills vanish. And it's, it's gone. And I start to get, you know, the clammy hands. And I'm like, how does one talk to people? (laughs) Where do you put your hands? Like, what are these appendages? I know it's so awkward. I, I, yeah, it's the same thing. Like we met at um, Dundurn's, uh, 50th anniversary party, the publisher. Yes, that was yes. And I remember just, I, th- I thought, where is the wine station? Because at least I know what to do there. But standing around in small groups of three and four people, um, you know, it's part of, well, I guess it's part of the anxiety of being an introvert or shy or whatever, and being able to express yourself on page. But, you know, in that informal, we don't have an official role kind of setting. That's where it's like terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've become very good at, I mean, since I was a teenager going to house parties, I've become very good at like suddenly becoming interested in the bookshelves. Yes. You know, like, I'm just going to take my drink and go and see what's what's up on that. And I think I even did that. And full disclosure, I should note, we're both Dundurn yeah. authors now. Yeah. And we did meet at that anniversary party in that beautiful house backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually had a stack of Dundurn books in the corner of that yard 
there was a moment during that night where I went over and was like, huh, I think I'm going to look through a couple of chapters and fascinating. Yes. Pretend this could that take I, hours. This is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is really what I want to be doing tonight. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel you. <laughs> In terms of the things you do, though, I mean, you are doing all these events and workshops. You have this weekly podcast, this weekly wine podcast that I, I am certain without even looking your numbers on that podcast make mine look non-existent. Is there, is there a Natalie McLean team that's work that you work with? Are you the, the boss, the CEO of Natalie McLean Inc.? Do you have multiple assistants like running to yes. grab you diet Cokes and warm towels and such? <laughs> well, no one's tasked with that yet, but we are hiring Nathan. Just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have a team of 15 people, so it's, wow. it is unfair to compare, uh, compare and despair, they say with anybody, but to compare the front end of my business, which is now more than 20 years old, the writing, you know, the apps, the newsletter, the unreserved wine talk podcast, et cetera. Uh, to, I am the brand, so to speak. It's mm. my name. That's the website. Um, but there's a team of people and I could not do this without them. So, you know, someone is working on the website another helps me with PR. Um, there's many facets and it, it, it literally takes a village. So I am blessed and fortunate to have those resources, but that's after a long slog of um, sort of plodding away just on my own in the beginning, for sure. In Not to get too inside baseball, but I will say your your reply to my invitation to be on this podcast was one of the quicker that I've ever had. Most authors, it's sort of like a week later at three in the morning, they suddenly <laughs> see my email like, oh, sorry, I meant to reply to this. Right. Was I actually getting a reply from you or was that wow. one of the 15 who was like, oh, Natalie needs to know about this. I'll pass it by or this seems okay. Was it actually nope. you replying or was it? Was <laughs> that it was me and, and not a chat GPT or anything okay. um, <laughs> because you emailed my direct uh, email address, whereas my website has a different email address. Oh. Um, but also I know, you know, how um, as a podcaster, lining up guests can be sometimes a challenge and, you know, you're gracious enough to extend the invitation. This is, I mean, bef this invitation just came recently but I have been listening to your podcast from the beginning as I, I truly love it. It's not because I'm here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Your your sense of humor, but also your angle that you take is different from a lot of the other book and literary podcasts that I listen to, you know, the what happened next. It's terrific. Um, not just for writers, but I think for anyone who loves reading. Um, but that said, I I found it interesting going back to inside baseball that I think you've asked me twice, maybe three times, if I felt the need to reschedule. It was like I think he gets a lot of flaky guests who keep canceling uh, yeah. him. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, not I, to cast dispersions on anybody sure. or aspersions rather on anybody who's been here. But anyway, there is one uh, author who's been on the podcast now who will remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> who did leave me hanging. Uh, I was sort of sitting here in this Zoom room for about oh. 20 minutes and I was like, mm. he forgot. That's uh, a lonely place, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then I just sent a message saying, hey, did you forget? And then about four days later, it was like, oh, sorry, I should have confirmed, yeah. That's so, a lot of latency. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's there's um, there's um not, there's a few authors out there who, who don't check email daily, let's say. What uh, freedom, eh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe even have that like 
pre-1990 author feeling of like the internet. I can't go near Wi-Fi <laughs> or, you know, internet connections because that will steal my soul and steal my creativity. I'm just so quaint. <laughs> I, I sort of envy it a little bit too as as a as an approach to the world, but yeah, I can't I can't live like that. Um I also will say that um your sense of of being an introvert, you're very good at hiding it. Because oh, we also did um an event not quite together, but one after the other in, in Ottawa at the Ottawa Writers Festival. Yeah. And I remember watching your event happen from the back of the room. And by the way, I, I will say, but I won't say that you were my opening act. <laughs> Warm-up band, warmed yes. Warmed up the crowd, and yeah. And now here he is. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I did the Ottawa Writer Festival, there was an event with Margaret Atwood right before, mm. before mine. I was like, hey, wow. if you want to like get them all ready to start talking about books, thanks. Thanks, Peggy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you are extremely good at hiding or, or sublimating or adapting your own introversion to extroversion to at least public extroversion and and I also watched you perform a kind of uh on stage wine workshop like how mm -hmm. to how to assess wine how to look at the glass how to look through the the liquid and all I could think was like oh I wish I had that kind of angle like anything that I could pull that I could be like hey we're not just going to talk books and words and ideas and things let's do something actually fun um, yeah, wine really helps, Nathan. It's been I, part of every book launch, you know, even though, you know, the subtitle is all about the dismal D's, including over drinking. Well, D's in the middle there, but anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do that a lot because it is a hook. It is an angle that has helped with more lifestyle oriented shows like let's pair books and bottles, vines and spines, you know, so mm, because they, yeah. they don't really want a downer interview. It's like, oh, you had a no good, terrible, very bad vintage. That's so sad. OK, let's look at the wine. <laughs> you right. know so right. you meet them where they're at <laughs> well it's it's it was funny because one of the things i looked at before this conversation was the interview you did on a um another podcast that probably buries mine in terms of um numbers of listeners which is the women of ill repute oh with yes wendy mesley and maureen holloway yeah, and i watched that i watched that discussion and i would say a good 60 to 75% of it was very frank discussion of your story and the story that informs this book and some of the difficulties you've had. And yet on the YouTube version of that podcast, there's one comment and that comment is, and I'll quote it. Thanks for the very interesting video. I do have a question for Natalie. What would be ideal food to pair with Amarone and Brunello, two of my favorite wines? And I thought, huh, <laughs> that's what you took away great exactly i mean great question i suppose i won't ask well, you to answer it right now but absolutely but still uh there is a point and i can lasso it back to wine amarone is a strong full-bodied wine with a bitter finish which really does pair well with my book so okay. uh, forget pasta or whatever else you're doing but uh absolutely you need something strong i, I will also say that the the hook that i always pull out is uh -huh. that um, because I'm an amateur musician, I get bands to play at my launches. That's a great and I, idea. I have now a, a live karaoke band, which did my most recent launch last summer. So I feel like we do this sort of thing of like, yeah, book, book, book. Let's talk. Okay, now let's go to the fun stuff. Fun stuff <laughs> let's yes. get the band up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love what you're doing with the little rubber ducks for Lump, yes, your book. Yeah. 
that's genius. Like I was seeing them around the Ottawa Writers Festival, little ducks mm. left here and there. And I, oh, that's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do it all the time and I'm, I still do it at events. Uh, although I always have a part of my mind where I wonder, is this just going to make people think it's a kid's book? Like are the little kids picking it up and going, I want to read about the ducky. And then, oh, it's about, you know, bitter marriages and awful people in Toronto. <laughs> Speaking of awful people, part of this book is about a lot of the kind of toxicity and problems in the wine industry, in that whole, in, especially in the wine writing, wine tasting industry, um, which I won't say shocks me because I feel like any industry that has money and alcohol flowing through with it would, has, is going to have a lot of sexism and just nastiness. I, it makes me wonder, though, when you are out promoting this book and you're talking about this book, like serious discussions about the, your your own, you know, difficulties with over drinking, your your relationship difficulties and so forth. And then it shifts to like, OK, let's do some pairing. It does make me think of like if you were uh, the author of a memoir about being a sniper and having PTSD from your war, war experiences and then going, okay, now let's go to watch Target. Let's do some Target practice and an some analysis. like trick shots. It's a weird shift to make from this is this is a thing that gave me difficulties to now I'm going to talk about that thing in more in a more pleasant way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, great question. Um, so, I mean, wine is what I've done for more than 20 years. So I feel it's as much a part of me writing, tasting, evaluating, all the rest of it, as writing my story was. So mm. for me, they're totally integrated. There might be a kind of tonal or weird shift for an audience, um, but I don't mind that because, I mean, prior to um, the bad vintage I talk about in the book, I tried to get people into the wine world through less intimidating means, and that would be food. So I focus mm -hmm. on, like, my online courses are all about food and wine pairing. So if I can make wine more accessible um, via this memoir, it's not like I want to get everybody drinking in on on, on or off the right. bed, whatever it is. Um, but I think people enter um, your story in different ways. And so, you know, um, whether they come in because they're wine lovers and I would like them to hear the message that's in this book about hope, justice, and resilience, that's mm -hmm. great. Or maybe they're just memoir lovers or lovers of, you know, rising from the ashes, whatever kind of Phoenix stories. And maybe then they start to see the whole wine world as something they might like to explore. That's okay. I, I want to meet people where they're at. Um, but one thing, Nathan, that was happening with um, the book at first, and I, I, I think we share an editor as well in the brilliant Russell Smith, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so at first, when we when I was writing the book, each chapter at the end had suggested wines to pair with whatever was going on in the chapter. Mm -hmm. But there were a number of reasons we took that out. Um, tonally, it was just weird. It's like, hey, going through a divorce or, you know, some something discouraging right. in your life, drink. <laughs> um, or, you know, having a happy moment, drink. Um, so I didn't want that to be the message because I really wanted you know, this wasn't meant to be a self-help book, but it's kind of turned out to be that for for many readers because they're using my tips on how I cut back as a wine professional, cut back on alcohol consumption. 
And I find that good because we, we need to have a healthy relationship, whether we choose to drink or not. But we took all that out because of that weird tonal shift you're, you're talking about right now. Uh, but also because the book was just getting too big. So we took hmm. all of those chunks out and then made a reader guide that people can get for free. Here comes this shameless self-promotion <laughs> no, <but that's... laughs> at winewitchonfire.com. <laughs> uh, but it's a, we took all those wine pairings so that if people are with their book club, that's perhaps a more appropriate environment. You're probably going to be drinking wine if you're reading this book and you like wine. So we took all those out and, you know, there's wine pairings, how to organize an informal wine tasting for your book club, that kind of thing. But yeah, it does seem, it can seem very strange to some people, but, you know, again, I'm trying to reach readers where they're at, but also these hosts of whatever it is, TV, radio, you know, they've got a mandate to fill and usually it's be entertaining or don't be here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're not getting invited on, yeah, to like, let's explore divorce and its aftermath for eight minutes before right. a live studio audience. On it's... the breakfast show. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With your fizzle flakes. It's like, <laughs> what a downer way to start the day. <laughs> yeah. I also want to, because you mentioned, you know, the book sort of acts almost as self-help in, in terms of the way people have, or a lot of readers have taken it. In terms of the reception it's had, I'm I'm certain, and I'd love you to talk a little bit about it. In terms of people, I'm certain people people approach you like after events or send you notes through the website, and maybe one of your fifteen people <laughs> pass those pass those upward to you, who have gone through similar things and have had have found a lot of solace and a lot of great advice in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wonder. Have there been people in the industry who were in that toxic mode who've now looked around and maybe like, oh, yeah, maybe we need to tone this down a bit. Have you had that kind of feedback as well? I have. I have. Um, And that's been very encouraging. And also just the um, amount of joking about over drinking like I was you know I wasn't a bystander I was team captain I called my glass of wine at 5 p.m mommy's little helper Mm -hmm. so you know but in the industry that's really promoted because it's promoting drinking but I think um I I've received also lots of feedback from those in the industry saying you know we don't talk about it but we should the over drinking um because uh, I forget which um which source this was but there was an industry study that said the um, greatest use of substance abuse, um, it, it's greatest in the hospitality industry, which includes mm. restaurants, wineries, and fringe industries. So, you know, it, it's it's something that we just don't talk about because it's, it's shameful. Like if you drink really taste, I, I tell my students, the difference between tasting and drinking is spitting and thinking. So we actually <laughs> don't imbibe 30 cabernets at 9 a.m right um but you know there's there's the cloak of professional respectability to because you know you're you're out to all these events you're at winemaker dinners at night i know there's no tiny violins playing for me sounds charmed but after a while it can get pretty wearing and um you know it's uh, it's an easy tool to use as a crutch um but we don't talk about it in the industry because the industry is all about marketing wine and um, and if you say anything, you have a problem, you're out, you know, mm-hmm. you have a problem with your drinking or, you know, there's just there's just a lot of shame 
um, a yeah. lot of secrecy and shame about this issue. Is yeah. there a sense of it? It almost being, you know, there the the equivalent of in the corporate world. If you go home before eight p.m., <laughs> you're weak. Yeah. Almost this macho thing. Whether you're man or woman, it's, it doesn't even matter. But there is this sense of, oh, you don't really want it bad enough. You're not really hardcore. Exactly. Well, people talk about how passionate they are about wine. And I agree with that aspect because, you know, I used to market food products at Procter & Gamble like Crisco and Pringles. And that that was pretty soulless. Wine does mm. have a story. There's usually there can be a family and a place. And, and so there is something more to it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I used to joke, joke that I could, you know, keep up with the boys, drink them under the table. You know, I was complimented mm -hmm. about how I could hold my alcohol. I used to joke about my Teflon liver coming from Nova Scotia and a Scottish family. Um, but I try not to do that so much anymore. Like, I I mean, just the titles of my books, previous books were like fodder for joking about my own consumption. And now I'm hoping to change that if I can you know, to fuel the discussion that we need to have inside our industry and outside of it without being a complete downer about it, because I still believe in the joys and sensory pleasures of wine. I didn't go sober. So here I am mm -hmm. stuck in the middle. <laughs> right. Although now I'm trying to picture, I'm imagining a someone who's an expert in pairing Pringles with with other other it's drinks. It's been done. All types this of goes well with flavors. RC oh, yeah. Cola. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned too the that whole uh, you know the mommy's little helper and the girls' night out and the little black dress brand wine and all of that. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder about any parallels you see between the wine industry and the publishing industry and how books are marketed, mm. because my sense there in that both industries, a lot of the marketing and a lot of the presumed audience is women. And particularly sort of upper middle class women with a little bit of disposable income. Do you find that there are some parallels there as well, that there's maybe other people uh, being left out of the the conversation or that even the marketing that is made toward women is a little bit narrow and maybe even a little stereotyped? Yeah, I think some of the marketing um, in the wine world toward women is uh, sort of looking at us as wallets, not women. And we subsidize all the the cute pink label stuff that, um, you know, to subsidize the serious artisanal sommelier driven kind of wines that men drink. Um, uh, the statistics in the industry are that uh, women as household purchasers of just about everything from SUVs to shreddies buy 80% of wine and we drink 66% of it, which might surprise people. Hmm. And um, so the, the greatest growth category, consumer demographic is women. Um, and they are trying to market to younger women, but millennials and younger generations are turning away from alcohol. Um, wine is a declining category, so I'm not sure how they're going to fix that. Um, not that it needs to be fixed if part of that, the consumption was over drinking. But there's a lot of parallels, Nathan, I think, between wine and and publishing. Definitely the the demographics or the presumed demographics of of women, educated, middle age, for sure. Um, but also this sort of long tail effect, like there's just so many books and so many wines mm -hmm. um, that I think, you know, we depend a lot on word of mouth to sell books. You know, there 
it's hard unless you're really, you know, whatever, John Grisham, you're not going to get advertising and that sort of thing, because there's just so much competition. And each book has such a little mind share that a lot of it is is based on organic spreading the word of mouth that way. And there's just so much choice that those recommendations are really important. For, but what differentiates books from wine is, you know, a, a book, a Margaret Atwood book that came out in 1988 and is republished today is basically the same book, maybe a new cover. But a 1988 um, Chateau d'Estournel and one that's made today is completely different. So you've got all the vintage variation mm. and changes of winemakers. And anyway, it's a really confusing category with millions of choices. So I do see that long tail being common to both of them as a marketing issue. Right. Given that those statistics and those numbers are showing that younger people are moving away from, I mean, all alcohol consumption, but specifically wine as well. And you are part of an industry that might be shrinking. Yes. Will there be a moment where I look at your website and you are giving like vape pa pairings? You are you, you are now the vape witch. <laughs> well, you know, you got to rise from the ashes when you got to rise from the ashes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> reinvention. Uh, you know what I have turned to, though, um, both for personal consumption and in response to my readers, uh, course students requests is I'm full on board now. Um, reviewing low and no alcohol wines. So, mm. and exploring those because those were kind of a sorry category even three years ago, but they've come a long way. And so I'm fully committed to tasting as many, um, especially the alcohol-free wine, beer, spirits, cocktails, mixed drinks. And I've got a growing list of them on my website that I send him out in my newsletter every week. Um, because th there's some surprising statistics around that too. Three quarters of people who buy alcohol-free wines also buy the alcoholic version. So it's not either or. Right. Um, and it's just, it's an exploding category. So it won't be vaping, but um, perhaps it'll be the wine-free uh, website, right. I don't know, <laughs> or, or wine light. <laughs> well, there's definitely a parallel there with with writing in that I could, there are multiple books that come out every season that are, uh, you know, as much like the 0% alcohol wine, they look like the real thing. They taste like the real thing, but there's no buzz. <laughs> there's no, uh, there's, no there's depth. a little bit of a less, yeah, no depth and no, you don't quite get the same intoxicating uh, effect. Right. I also wonder about this quote by the poet Sean Darity. Oh, yeah. from the poem Why Bother, which is someone has a wound in the exact shape of your words, mm. which is a really interesting place for a wine writer to start. It also makes me wonder in terms of your next book project, are you feeling like what you did in this book, it kind of closes a chapter on your story and you're ready to move back into, you know, uh, talking about wines in a more public way and less yeah. of your own story? Or has this kind of given you a, no pun intended, a taste <laughs> for wanting to address your own stories or even kind of things that are happening in society or things you're seeing in the world? Um, so this, writing this memoir um, was the hardest thing I've ever done writing-wise, the most emotionally exhausting. <laughs> uh, I never want to do it again, ever, ever, ever. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to go back to wine, uh, wine books, 
but in a different way. Um, so not the jokey, jokey about overconsumption, but um, perhaps more, more whatever, holistically as a, a, a putting my personal story in there without just the flippancy. Um, you know, what I'm thinking of for the next book is more of a a book for book clubs, but it's going into the background and the stories of some of these really great wines that are out there, whether it's women or, you know, wh whomever, uh, but really authentic stories and structuring perhaps a book club around that. So something like that, sort of like not so emotionally um, mm -hmm. draining. So that's kind of where I'll go after this. I, I don't have an appetite to produce anything more on the memoir or, you know, world issues or whatever. I just, I also don't think I, I'm the right person for that. Um, but going back to Sean Doherty, uh, I love that quote. Like I coupled it with um, the memoirist Glennon Doyle, who said, write from a scar, not an open wound. And then, and then I said, well, you know, why bother? Because as Sean already said, because somewhere someone has a wound in the exact shape of your words, which every time I say it gives me goosebumps. But what they were referring to in my mind, the way I interpreted it was, you, you know, especially for memoir, if you've gone through something, you pretty much have to go through something traumatic and come out on the other end, because it can't be like a misery dump, of like, ugh, look at this. You know, mm. it, people want to see what you did with it. It's not what happened to you. It's what you did with it. It's not your story. It's it's their story, what they can take from it. So what I was getting from that, those two quotes was, you need the lens of time to pull back so that the healing is done. You can reflect. It's all about the reflections in a memoir, um, the what you did with it, and that somebody else will find useful. So that's about the, the wounds and the scars that they have been closed, but someone else may still have an open wound and relate to your story. And that, you know, I, I probably took this metaphor way too far, but I said words <laughs> were my sutures to sew <laughs> that wound back together. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's how I made sense of my life as many writers do. And that's how I think what can be liberating for someone who reads a story and you articulate the way they felt, mm -hmm. that can be a release. I wonder how much you knew in advance that the, the reaction that you that I referred to before of people coming to you and saying this was so helpful. Did you know in advance that you were going to get at least some of that? Was that part of what kind of drove you forward? Uh, no, I was just terrified to publish it, Nathan. I, I had I, I paid out of pocket for two lawyers to read this book. Mm. Um, to scan through it, uh, as I say, line by line to make sure there was no clause for concern. Um, and I, I was terrified because the, you know, I named names in the book um, of the the trolls. At first I wanted to rename, or at first I did rename them all because I mm -hmm. thought, you know, trolls feed on public exposure. Let's not give them that oxygen. But then as the brilliant Russell Smith and I discussed this and he he said, you have to, this is a confrontational book in a way, you have to name names. And then I realized also from a legal point of view that if I quoted these people and what they were saying and didn't name the names, I'd be violating their copyright, mm. which is kind of an interesting turn because copyright, the copyright issue plays a big role in this book. Um, so in the end, I was at peace with naming names, because I do believe they deserve full credit for what they did and said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
but still I was very nervous of when the book was coming out, what was going to, was there going to be another huge backlash? Because part of my story was a huge social media meltdown backlash. And I thought they're just going to re-encamp and go after it again. Um, so that's, that was my anticipation with this book coming out. And yet I couldn't not write it. I had to make that decision somewhere along the way because, you know, I felt like my story had been written by many others, but I didn't get to write my final chapter. And here I was a writer. So anyway, I, I pushed through that with lots of support from my family and lawyers and so on. But that was the reaction I was expecting. Mm. What what actually came through surprised me. And I was really surprised about, you know, the amount of self-help stuff, like, you know, like my tips about, you know, open a full bottle and I pour half of it into a half empty bottle. And because that's, that makes me more mindful of how, how much I'm consuming and it keeps the wine fresh for another day. All those little things, tips that are sprinkled through the book as just my ways of coping, people glommed onto those. And that's a big part of what they're saying, you know, like, you know, I got one. I got one letter that I'll share with you. That was just I'll change the names, of course. But she said, "Hi, Natalie. It's Susan. My wife, um, John, read your book um, recently, and I just want to let you know that during COVID, COVID, our 21-year-old son took his life, mm. and John started hitting the bottle pretty hard. And I think that your book is part of it um, in terms of why he's back on track now." So wow. it was like, okay, that's worth it. Yeah. How yeah. do you, not to say exactly how you literally responded to that message, but have you had to learn certain, maybe even just like coping strategies? Because that's a lot. Absolutely. Because my first two books were all about cocktail chatter and I yeah. could stay on that level of flippancy in my responses. But this was like mm. heartrending after heartrending and I had to slow down and and also let myself be affected. Like this is part of why I wrote the book to, to you know, cliche, to connect with readers, but this is real connection. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I overdrank was to not feel feelings. And so the thing that I had to challenge myself was, with was feel the feelings and then mm. respond out of that. So I tried, tried to do it. And it would be not great if you responded to some of those messages, those raw, wounded messages with, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Here are three Zinfandels that uh, the LCBO <laughs> has this this week. <laughs> yeah. You'll find they're strong, but, you know, still complex to deal with what you've been dealing with. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, the, the you know, I always have a little feeling of trying to do that. But no, I, I, I keep myself on a shorter leash now. <laughs> What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.